I'm a Netflix junkie, and I just finished this special on Robert F. Kennedy's life. Um, if you're not familiar with RFK, I would commend this particular Netflix series to you. Uh, I was struck again as I watched um, that those who proclaim truth, particularly truth to power, usually in their time they are either ignored or marginalized or eliminated. They're killed. And this was certainly the case for RFK and to a large extent his older brother, John F. Kennedy. They were politicians who to their enemies were the representation, the embodiment of change, of threat. Uh, both of them, not to mention in the same era, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, they all lived their lives under a constant threat of death. So much so that in this Netflix documentary, they have video footage of uh, Robert F. Kennedy when he was running for president in 1968 in an open uh, car waving to the crowd and uh, a firecracker goes off and you can see him visibly wince. Obviously, his brother was shot and killed in a similar way, but it was the scores of threats to his life that made him live on edge. And Martin Luther King would have said the same. We are reaching the point in our study in the Gospel of John where Jesus is now living under the threat of death. And as we think about Jesus living under the threat of death, knowing what we know about who Jesus is, that by nature he is both fully God and fully human. It's hard to remember that this would be uh, at once stressful and at the same time um, a recognition, obviously, that he could uh, do what he wanted to and exercise a divine authority when he needed to. Uh, he isn't deterred. I've often wondered how people can continuously function in life with this degree of um, pressure on their existence. And Jesus wasn't deterred because on one hand, he, he knew his calling. He knew he was to be an atoning sacrifice for sin, that death was actually the plan for him. But he also knew that as the divine son of God, I, he could intervene. And he says this to his disciples when they try to defend him on the night of his arrest. He says, hey, listen, if I wanted to, I could call down the angels and we could end this thing right now. So there is a degree of comfort in God's protection that Jesus has as well. For me, the bigger question, and the question that exists because of the climate in westernized countries in particular, where Christianity is becoming a smaller and smaller influence, where Christian, at least Orthodox Christian people, people who would ascribe to a biblical worldview, are becoming a smaller and smaller size of our population and in many ways being marginalized and told that your beliefs are arcane and sort of uh, out of step with reality, out of step with what we know to be true. Uh, there is great pressure on the Christian church from certain circles within so-called Christianity to adapt and change what Scripture says to make it more palatable to the world around us. The question for me as I look at today's text in John 7 is, what is Jesus saying 
that was so angering to those around him. It wasn't just the religious leaders. That, that's well documented. We'll see today that many are now being angered by his teaching. Uh, a little context and review. For those of you who haven't been tracking with this, as always, we would encourage you to keep up on our website or download our sermons through the podcast app. You can get that at the podcast store. Um, Jesus, in recent weeks and months of this narrative, has pulled off some big miracles. He healed on the Sabbath. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. But then he determines in his omniscience and his omnipotence and in the divine part of his, his dual nature that it's time for him to thin the herd. So what he does is he opens up, as they say in the wrestling world, a can of doctrinal whoop but and, and the crowds then dissipate. What happens is, is Jesus delivers a very difficult teaching and people realize, okay, I'm not really down with this whole Jesus thing. I'm not going to follow him no matter what he says and, and believe whatever comes out of his mouth and make that the measure of how I determine what's true and not. And so they decide, we're, we're done. Thank you very much. And the crowd's thin. His brothers come along and they say, listen, we want to get the mojo back in the ministry. They suggest to him, you got to get to this festival of booths in Jerusalem because that's where the crowds are and we'll just build this thing back up again. And Jesus tells them, as we talked about last week, I got my own timetable for this. You guys go on up ahead. And so with the brothers already in Jerusalem, Jesus in Galilee, we pick up the text in John seven fourteen, where it says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Jesus very quietly arrives on the scene, and in the middle of this festival, week long, he says, I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go to the tabernacle and start teaching. The scene must have been remarkable. As you can imagine, uh, in any religious context, it's strange for somebody who does not have the authority to begin directing the crowd to kind of assume that role. Uh, imagine, if you will, on a Sunday you come to your church, this one if you're here, and, and a complete and total stranger just wanders in and stands up here and starts talking and people just start coming off the street and listening. How weird that would be. You know, how, how it would be like, okay, who are you and why are you here? And so we forget about that. We assume that, you know, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple area, that they would have been just like, hey, Jesus is in town. Let's bring him up to speak. Uh, he comes and kind of, uh, you know, decides on his own, time for me to begin a teaching. And what happens is the crowds begin to gather, so there was very little that the Jewish leaders could do to stop him. Uh, last week, we drew this distinction, our timing versus God's timing. And in this passage of John 7, what we're going to look at today is our doctrine versus God's doctrine. Uh, through most of the first section of the Gospel of John, the primary emphasis or question being answered is, who does Jesus say he is? And here in chapter 7, we begin to turn where we begin to see another question answered, which is, what did Jesus say? Or is what Jesus is saying true? And for our purposes today, we're going to look at a pattern that existed in both Jesus' life and in the life of the apostles, um, a, a response that happens when 
public truth is declared? Uh, what was their response to his authoritative teaching? And this serves, this template, uh, as one which we can use to rest about how culture reacts, how about how people react to the presentation of Christianity. And so we'll begin by looking at Jesus' authoritative teaching. And in this context of John 7, 15 through 18, what we see is that what Jesus says is meant to be doctrine's true measure. His authoritative teaching. So let's pick it up here, verses 15 through 18 of John 7. It says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether or not, whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So you see Jesus saying, people who are doing this for their own ego, you can test whether or not what they're saying is true based on their motive for what they are doing. And of course he's speaking to many who are using religion as a means of power and authority over other people's lives. Jesus has two distinct natures, as we've already mentioned, fully divine, fully human. And in this instance, as they inquire about where he got this knowledge, Jesus is operating in his human nature. He was admitting that he did need to learn. And this is critical for us to understand. You know, as a kid, Jesus didn't automatically know how to tie his shoes. Somebody had to teach him how to do that. He didn't know math. Somebody had to tell him and teach him how to do that. He was limited in his human nature as many of us are. He was tempted just as we are. He was fully human. And we needed Jesus to be fully human so that he could be our legal substitute. And so we could know that he knows what we're up against. And that's really what we mutually profess this morning from the New City Catechism, week 22. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. The Pharisees want to know, where in the world did you come up with this material? You've not been in any of our schools. We don't see your letters. Where are you from? Interestingly, Jesus does to appeal to his own purity when talking about this for the glory of the Father. Anybody who's doing this for themselves and for their own glory should be suspected. But Jesus is looking to bring glory to the one who sent him. And in that spirit, he has authority. Jesus' critics were asking, where does your teaching originate? And that's because in their culture, no one came up with their own material. They were students of others. This was true of the Apostle Paul as well. Their religious tradition was built upon the words of those who came before. So being an original, albeit prized in our world, and that particular culture would not have been a selling point. So Jesus makes a bold claim. He does not say, my teaching is my own, which they would have immediately rejected as really arrogant and presumptive. But instead he says, 
my teaching is not mine, but it's the teaching of him who sent me. So on one hand, they go, okay, at least he's not saying it's his. But on the other hand, they're going, so you're saying you're speaking as if God told you what to say. And so what you say trumps everything that we say. This is what baffled the Jews. How did Jesus come to a place of being so authoritative without formal training? That was the means by which they thought a person would have authority. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has demonstrated this kind of ability to baffle or have people marvel at his teaching. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, we see Jesus, a child prodigy, challenging religious teachers in the temple. As it says in Luke 2, 46-47, after three days, his parents, they, found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So you've, you've, you've got Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, hanging out with the religious leaders, questioning, asking them questions, providing them answers. <laughs> so almost three decades later, Jesus comes back to spar with them again. I love the thought of this. I wonder if there were any of the old guys that were there three decades earlier going, is this the same kid that we saw back then? Because, dude, this guy's really grown up. So... He begins a discourse with them that I want to read, verses 19 through 24, where Jesus is going to challenge a very particular point of their doctrinal statement, and also uh, he's going to raise an objection to their opposition to him. So allow me to read these five verses, and then I'm going to give you the the raw vernacular kind of modern-day translation of what Jesus is saying to them. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Now remember, this is the crowd, not just the religious leaders. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is hearkening back to months before when he'd healed someone on the Sabbath and the religious leaders still hadn't gotten over this. And Jesus effectively says to them in this passage, you regularly perform the religious saving task of circumcision. This is a, a part of a small part of a person's body, on the Sabbath, but you're bent out of shape because I healed an entire man on the Sabbath. And while we read this, you know, from the language of Greek and, and then translated into English, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, a number of commentators actually say that what Jesus would have said effectively in our day and age would be to say, use your heads. <laughs> have you ever said that? If you have a teenager, one day you will. You'll say, are you out of your mind? Use your head. You know, and, and, and this is what Jesus would have been saying to these folks. You, you're, you are, you are double speaking here. You're not thinking clearly. D.A. Carson says, this is the connection of thought. The Jewish interpretation of the law allowed circumcision on the Sabbath 
in spite of the law against work on the Sabbath because circumcision perfected the child. And Jesus claimed that to make a person whole had the same aim. And as he had many a time, Jesus stumps his opponents. And this plays no small part in fueling their desire to kill him. Any of you who were ever the smartest kid in the class know that's a burden to be born. Um, I was never that guy, FYI. <laughs> I was the punk who was threatening the kid who was wrecking the curve. So I, I understand that if you're the person who is the smartest person in the class, it's very hard. People are jealous and envious. And in Jesus' case, he's divine. And he's effectively telling them, I'm going to be the measure by which we decide whether or not something is true. I'm going to be the one who is the means by which we're going to interpret the Old Testament. He asserts himself both physically and spiritually and theologically into the middle of their world and says, I'm going to give you the right way to think about this. Now, imagine how poorly that would go over in your life. Somebody just introducing themselves, hi, let's have lunch. I want to tell you the truth about some things in your life. You don't know me very well, but here I go. This, this just obviously never, you know, no one ever goes, wow, that was such a fun lunch. You know, can I have some more? So Jesus comes into their world, and this is the challenge to them. It's irritating to them. It is baseball season, and uh, it's interesting. As I think about uh, the etymology of certain words we use in our world, in our culture, uh, many of them find their origins in the game of baseball. And one of those words is the word baseline. All right, so we, sometimes we'll say, well, what's your baseline motive here? Or we'll say, what is the baseline uh, demographic you're looking at? Or, or what's the mathematical baseline you're working from? And now, granted, that word has many places in culture and has been used for many, many moons. But in our culture, a baseline is the line between home and first and first and second base and all the way around the bases. And if you didn't know, and if you don't know, in baseball, you can't veer too far out of the baseline or the umpire can call you out. In other words, if you round first base thinking, I'm going to go for a double, and the ball comes in early, and you get caught between first and second base, and they're going to tag you out, you can't just sprint into right field and run around like a chicken with your head cut off. You know, it's like, you haven't tagged me yet, you know? You have to stay in the baseline, right? There's a baseline. And if you don't stay in the baseline, you're out. At the heart of our lives, at the heart of what Jesus was teaching at the heart of what the scriptures challenge us to, is a definition of life that is required of us to be the baseline for what we believe and how we live. This is what would have caused people to say, that guy has got to go. That guy's got to go. He is talking about, I have to define life as he says and that is not something I'm willing to do. So the tide is turning, and they begin to plot. And now, in addition to seeing what Jesus' authoritative teaching was, we look at this pattern I spoke of, this 
response to truth. You see it in our age, you see it in that age. Human answers to truth. And one reality is is that our doctrine, our doctrine, as opposed to God's doctrine, Jesus' doctrine, our doctrine is pride-powered. It is teeming with our own ego and with our own thoughts about the world. This, me, I am the center of my universe. I am the captain of my soul. Jesus continues the encounter in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. He says, and this is the Scriptures, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus not because he was teaching, love God and love your neighbor. This was his accurate summary of the Old Testament law. He was saying to them, you're not keeping the law. He was telling them that they didn't grasp the true purpose of the law. They certainly weren't neglecting the law. This was a big part of their religious life and thought. Their reaction was severe because Jesus had assumed a position of judgment. And we would say, given that we believe, profess that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who sits now at the right hand of the Father, who said, according to the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We would believe that He rightfully stands as judge and jury of our lives. That obviously doesn't go over well with the people who thought they were the judge and jury. The general populace was saying, Clearly, he's here and he's speaking publicly. They're not doing anything about it. Do you think that they know? But they were also confused because they thought, really they presumed that they had all the data they would need about figuring out the Messiah, when he was coming, what he was doing. Both the people and the teachers incorrectly presumed that they understood the Old Testament prophecies so well that they could say with certainty where the Messiah would come from. What they don't realize is that while they may have known he grew up in Galilee, they didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. And yet, the prophecy of Isaiah would tell us that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. So they knew that too. Most importantly, not a single one of them realized where Jesus truly came from. So while they thought they had a grasp on things, we know where he came from. Ultimately, he came from the Father full of grace and truth, which is the theme of our, our John, Gospel of John study from John 1.14. They did not know who he really was. And so Jesus, in the midst of this public frenzy, puts the Pharisees, if you will, on the intellectual ropes. They were afraid, again, to make a move. This would be frustrating, too. In his translation of the Gospel of John, Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, reads in a very modern framework like this. This is his take on how the people were responding to Jesus' 
temple teaching. Isn't this the one they were out to kill? And here he is out in the open saying whatever he pleases and no one is stopping him. Could it be that the rulers know that he is in fact the Messiah? Now the pattern we see in John 7 is very similar to the pattern that we see in another part of Scripture, which is there are three responses. There are three responses to the proclamation of the gospel. There's a sense of marveling, a, you know, like, okay, this is sort of interesting, and I'm, this, is, this is strange, this is teaching, I, I want to hear more. And then there is the response of attacking. You see in verse 15 of our passage in John 7, the Jews marveling at Jesus. And, but then you see then verse 20, they're coming after him. They're attacking. And then there's a third response, which you see in verse 31 of our passage, is people are believing. This is very similar to the Apostle Paul's experience in Acts chapter 17. When Paul is proclaiming the truth, when they heard about the resurrection, it says some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. You see the same thing. People are either going to say, I, I want to know more, or some people are going to just simply mock you for your faith. But others will come along and actually believe. In Jesus' ministry and in Paul's, this is an important reality. Not everyone will believe, but everyone who wishes to be saved needs to. It is good news because it is the way out of certain judgment. And if a person's pride prevents them from admitting their need for forgiveness and subsequently their need for Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf, the Scriptures tell us that some are going to dictate, they're going to, I mean, some are going to respond angrily with hostility because it feels threatening to them. Others will be intrigued. And the reason people are angry is because when we create human doctrine, we are opposed to anything that robs us of our self-dependence. We want to be seen as our own Savior. We want to be seen as the captain of our fate. Jesus says this in verses 28 through 31 of John 7. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, that I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him, who you, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. Here, Jesus' exclusive claim, not only did he require folks to believe in him, but he did so in a way that many decided they didn't like him very much at all. They rejected him. And further, the religious leaders, they wanted to arrest him, but in God's sovereign plan, they weren't able to do so. And the point of Jesus' teaching was to assert that he had the authority to proclaim truth, not a truth or some truth, but to be the standard bearer because he received his teaching from God. And he told these folks, you don't know him. This would be, if Jesus were not from God, a very arrogant statement. It would be, think of somebody saying that in our culture. I know God, you don't. That's not received very well at all. Jesus 
is making this claim, and it turns some people off. Now, I, I, I want to take a quick right angle into a, a cultural reality that I think is part of what we need to take away from today's passage, which is there are a group of, uh, they could be well-intentioned Christians, assuming they are Christians, that seem to be bending over backwards in many ways to change the nature of what Scripture says about the gospel, all in an effort to supposedly not lose Christianity's influence or have people be hostile to the faith. One of these recently was quoted as saying about our gospel that if it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news. And that's a silly statement. Um, It implies that the gospel can't be about salvation from eternal separation from God and hell because that would be bad news for those who don't turn to Jesus. But when pressed, many of these modernized twisters of Christianity can't account for the evil injustices done by people. In other words, they want to have it both ways. They want to talk about There is no such thing as judgment. Jesus won't judge anybody. But then you ask them, what will happen to the Hitlers of the world? At which point they either have to blow off your question or come up with a system of relief from judgment that is possible through a very very nonspecific set of good works. Because this is more palatable to our pride. It's the antithesis, mind you, of Proverbs 3.34 and James 4.6 that says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But nonetheless, this position is forwarded and it's hypocritical because you can't say on one hand there's no eternal judgment except for really bad people and then on the other hand not define how you came to that conclusion or say what standard you're using to determine who is bad and where did you come up with that standard. This is the so-called zeitgeist of our culture. This is the, the tenor. This is where we are, and it's unfortunately bled its way into Christian theology. The idea that no one will ever be offended by the truth, that no one will ever reject Christ and therefore not be saved, is obviously a position only you could come to if you didn't read the New Testament. In many ways, I would say it is our fear that we would end up like Jesus, the apostles, or countless other Christians through the ages who were persecuted for their faith, this fear is often what drives people to begin to compromise what they believe. And I want to say, I I empathize with that. I don't want to be marginalized or hated. I love being loved. Um, I, I want our culture to embrace Christianity, but if I'm going to take an honest look at how they reacted to Jesus, who perfectly presented the gospel, who didn't err in his approach or in his teaching in any way, he flawlessly executed the mission statement, and they still rejected him and killed him. The Apostle Paul, I dare to say, is a standard by which we should set our public face of Christianity, a gracious and truthful presentation, and they rejected him too. So I get, I get why people are afraid of being rejected. But Jesus has sacrificed for us and resurrected from the dead to prove it. That he is 
authoritative. What choice do we have but to fall in behind him? He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. In reading this passage, I I was struck again by the familiarity of the tone with what Paul said to the Corinthians. And so I have a rather lengthy section of 1 Corinthians 1 I want to read that has, I believe, great relevance for us. Because in our era, if you're a Christian who does not have a substantive faith, a foundation of real understanding of why you believe in the gospel, the pressures of our culture, those who are opposed to the gospel, those who are offended by the gospel, those pressures will cause you to bend and twist, and you'll put yourself in a place of great insecurity. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As tragic as the deaths of Bobby and John Kennedy were, perhaps more tragic was the 1999 death of JFK Jr., the son of John F. Kennedy. He died in a plane crash off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Kennedy's wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren, were also on board and died. You may ask, other than it being a plane crash, what was so tragic about this? What was tragic about it was it was caused by pilot error. An error that took place because JFK Jr. proudly flew into a situation that he was neither trained for nor experienced enough to handle. You see, he flew into clouds, and when flying in zero visibility, a pilot doesn't have the ability to use the visible horizon to get oriented. And in such cases, they have to use the instrumentation they have at their disposal, the indicators in front of them to guide them instead of their natural instincts, which often fool them. Pilot vertigo happens. And this is where a pilot, in cloud cover, trusts their instincts, and the number of times they come out of those clouds completely upside down is mind-boggling, according to some flight instructors. Worse yet, as in the case with JFK Jr., they never get out of the clouds and effectively drive themselves into the ground because they're pulling up on the stick, thinking they're elevating And in reality, they're diving into the ground. The warning from today's teaching is that Jesus' words 
must be our instrumentation. The teaching from scriptures are the things we use, are the gauges we used. We are told by Jesus, his word is authoritative. We're to not trust our own instincts because we are flying in this world as human beings blind. We are to trust what he says. And the Christian is called to this. That makes uncomfortable. Those who say, I'd like to be a part of the Jesus thing, but I'm not ready to trust him. It's by grace that we do so. But there's no question that this is the call that Jesus is presenting to the world and to you and me. Trust in me with all of your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Let us pray.